up, everyone? I recently had a wide-ranging discussion with Victor Brazon from the Pilt Pod after reading his introductory article entitled Liberalism and Its Discontent and Matt McManus's book on a critical socio-legal examination of liberalism with Palgrave Macmillan, published in 2020. Needless to be said, Victor and I had a pretty good laugh recording our conversation in light of Francis Fukuyama releasing his most recent book by the same title this past week. Though published by an academic press and rather pricey, I highly recommend people give it a read. Especially if you've been following the rise of the new right and postmodern conservatism developed through the work of Michael Brooks and McManus. In any event, I hope you all enjoy the convo, along with discussing Matt McManus's book on a critical legal and capability-based approach to liberalism. We also talk about how the pill pod got started, some differences between left-wing and right-wing versions of communitarianism. Michael Brooks' interest in integral theory and cosmopolitanism, humanistic and existential psychology, the role of religion in the public sphere, and finally, Canada's contribution to philosophy and political theories, evolving ideas of cosmopolitanism. So let me know what you guys all think, and I hope you're all doing well. Cheers. All right, rock and roll. Well, Vic, thanks a lot for coming on. I really appreciate it. Happy it's to be good here, to, uh, to 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 meet you a bit in person as well. Well, yeah, <laughs> as like much we as just this disgusting. Is, yeah, yeah, as much as this can count as in person, but yeah, no, I mean, obviously, you've been you were like one of our early supporters. I feel like you you must have been one. Were you like one of our first patrons? I mean, I know you're not anymore, but I feel like you must have been like one of our first. Oh, I, probably. I mean, I guess once you guys launched a Discord, but uh, I mean, obviously, I've been following all of your work pretty closely uh, for quite some time now. Um, and I guess what I'm super excited too, to, to about is to kind of go out and try and figure out, I guess, the chronology of how you guys came together as a crew and oh, yeah. how uh, it culminated in this book with Matt, obviously. Because um, the essay, you know, that you wrote in terms of the introduction, in terms of his book is just fantastic. I mean, I'm glad you enjoyed. Yeah, I've been following his, his I guess, his writing and kind of, development kind of post his post i guess kind of since he graduated in developing as a writer so his work has just spoken to me on so many different levels and this essay that you wrote for his most recent well one of his most recent works <laughs> yeah that guy's yeah. that, guy that guy's level of productivity is superhuman i, I don't know <laughs> how he does it he like he's like writing like 20 essays i feel like a month i, I like I feel like he has a new think piece out and then he's like reviewing all these conservative books too. Like he's reviewing all any, like any new dumb conservative book that comes out, whether it's Ben Shapiro or whatever, it's like, Matt's going to be writing a review for it. And it's just, I don't know how he pumps out so many things all the time. And then meanwhile, he's on his what, like fifth or sixth book. It's crazy. I don't know yeah. how he does it. No, I mean that the man can write faster than I can read. So. Yeah. <laughs> and I think part of it is actually the fact that he reads so fast. Like I've, uh, I've been with him when he's like, okay, like, yeah, I'm just going to read. And then he'll be like done a, a book, like an academic book in like a week. Yeah. Like he read, he read like Dugan's book, you know, uh, like recently, uh, like, which is I think a giant tome. And then he read like Millerman's book too about Dugan. And he like, he, he digested that in like a week. Yeah. The, the guy is, the guy is a machine. No, he is. He really is. I mean, but his, his writing has just spoken to me on so many different levels. Um, and so did your essay, because I guess my academic background is actually in religious studies. So you picked up on, a, I guess, a lot of things or highlighted some aspects, you know, in terms of that I've been feeling and been 
thinking about tremendously kind of reading Matt's work, because obviously he's coming at much more from a critical legal perspective, which is completely out of the scope of my own kind of academic background. But I mean, it's been a real journey for me in terms of my ongoing sort of understanding of politics and, and the, you know, the legal jurisdictions and stuff like that in terms of how it works in terms of international politics and stuff like that. Um, so it's been fascinating. And I really felt kind of the flavor, I guess, of your kind of philosophy background, because you have an MA in philosophy as well, if I understand correctly. Right? Correct. Yeah, correct. And and yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I remember when Matt asked me to write the introduction to this book, <clears throat> I was like, I don't know, Matt, Matt is like, Matt is like so generous with, with his friends when it comes to like, oh, right, you know, write an essay in my edited volume, like write, write the introduction for, for my book. And I remember being kind of like unsure about what exactly to write. And I think, um, but I think this, this kind of problem that I think, because you, you mentioned you come from a religious background and excuse me for, for the listeners, you know, I think um, really like what I argue in, in this introduction, which I haven't, hadn't read in a while, but really I, I, I kind of put my finger on like the ways in which liberalism and liberal neutrality, I guess, can be sort of unappealing or feel kind of alienating or feel kind of inhuman or like it doesn't really capture like a sense of community or a sense of meaning in life right and i guess like that's probably i'm guessing where like you know your religious background i guess it spoke to you in that sense um and i th and that was just something that i was interested in at the time i actually don't come from a religious background at all and in fact i like liberal neutrality like i, I like the alienation of it like i actually appreciate it. but what i realized is that like that's not the case for everybody like I'm a total cosmopolitan, like I have no attachment to like culture, like to some spe specificity of culture, like I don't care at all um, about any of that stuff. But I recognize that a lot of people do. Mm. Um, and I think that liberalism, if it's going to be appealing, if it's going to win people over, I think that it needs to have some way of talking about it. And I think to some extent what Matt was doing in the book was kind of trying to find a way of talking about it through his idea of dignified self-authorship. Although I will say that, like, I don't know if it was came through in my introduction but in some ways like i'm most skeptical about how successful it actually is at, no at, totally at yeah that. That, that's yeah. why i'm so excited to talk to you about it because i mean uh, to me it, it, as well i'm not sure if it goes up and beyond liberalism to go and answer you know a lot of the questions that people have and some of you know kind of the responses reactionary responses we're seeing on the left and the right as well that you both kind of develop yeah, and exactly and Ex exactly really that's one of the things i think i talk about in the introduction is the fact that there's actually you know, it's not just the right wing, although the right wing is kind of a new development of right wing anti-liberalism, right? With the Matt and I have been talking about this for a while. And in fact, we on our last interview with Greg Sargent from The Washington Post, we talked about the, the new right and how a lot of the new right is kind of um, real. Well, it has all these sort of critiques of liberalism, right? That it like destroys community, destroys kind of meaning structures. But then they're starting to kind of also realize that part of that destroying meaning structures comes from the economic side of liberalism mm. too, right? So like that's why we're seeing the Patrick Deneens, um, and may, and I think maybe some of the uh, who's the other guy, the So 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 Rab Amari, I think like they're kind of there's this new flavor of like a right wing reactionary that is kind of like left wing on economic issues, but very right wing on social and meaning meaning issues, and I think. Uh, that makes sense from from uh, from the perspective of criticizing liberalism. I can see why that's happening because, you know, finally, I guess some conservatives are realizing, oh, like the the economic part of the liberalism is maybe also part of the problem uh, mm -hmm. that's destroying these meaning structures that I value. 
uh, so much. But yes, of course, on the left, that's been a long-standing critique, the economic side. Um, and to some extent, the culture side, I think I mentioned the communitarians have a, on the left yeah. have, a, have, a, have a long history of sort of identifying the atomization of liberalism that everyone's treated as this atomized individual. And that like, you know, we need some sort of, we need to cultivate some kind of civic culture, some kind of community culture uh, that is going to like, I guess, necessary for the conditions of justice, I suppose. No. And I mean, that's, I guess, because in terms of my academic background in religious studies, I mean, most of the authors and thinkers that I was exposed to are much more along communitarian sort of lines. Like one of the biggest ones, I guess, that had a big impact on me is Robert Bella. Um, but very much like Charles Taylor, he's quasi communitarian, but, you know, very much to the left. He's not very much to the right in a certain way. Um, but being exposed to Matt's writing, I mean, he really smashed that for me pretty hard when I start to get in, into some of his reading, um, you know, because I wasn't that well versed as, as well versed, I would say, in the philosophical liberal tradition. Um, and, you know, because of studies, sociology and anthropology and, you know, and basically how they went out and deconstructed what religion really is, I got to just got exposed a lot more to that. So I appreciated that, too, there in terms of um, how you brought that up in the piece um, and how you veer into could... the existential kind of questions. Right. Is this is this self authorships type of of framework that he's developing? Is it enough to go and kind of. Um, I guess, feed people's existential questions, but also larger um, questions of meaning that you you highlight there too. Yeah, no, totally. I think it's, uh, I mean, you know, I haven't, I haven't revisited Matt's precise argument in a while, but yeah, I mean, I mean, in some ways I know he, I know he borrowed a lot from people like Martha Nussbaum and like, I guess what they call the capabilities approach to liberalism, right. Which is like about uh, the capacities that people have to fulfill to like carry out the life of their choosing. And I think like dignified self-authorship is in a way like a species of that, where it's this idea that like liberalism, like any form of kind of like political economic liberalism needs to also contain within it the conditions that allow people to flourish in some sense. And like, you know, and I think that that, that question of flourishing is important. And I think that that's, um, you know, something that, that concerns me as someone who's totally like not religious, you know, both my parents were atheists, I think I mentioned, um, never really cared about that stuff, always thought religion was silly. But but I think, but, you know, more and more, I think, as I've gotten older and, and matured, you know, I think I think I realized that where I think dignified self-authorship is, is right, um, and where I also think it overlaps maybe with why some people like religion or like um some kind of like commitment to community is that i think when you get older you realize that like all the things in life that are worth doing like require a, a kind of level of commitment and discipline to in your own life mm. and i think that people re you realize that like the real satisfaction that you get from like achieving something is that you've like thrown yourself into something and pushed yourself to overcome and i think that like you know the good parts of religion are the fact that um that like they 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 invite you to commit yourself to something in a really deep way um and 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 sometimes there's an aspect of discipline to that and i think like discipline is actually like you know self-discipline you you uh but of course i think the problem with religion for me at least is that it ends up being like a discipline that comes from the outside that does that's not necessarily the case like you know i understand you know, if you can take like a Kierkegaardian approach to it or something like that, right? And it's like you are taking it up, right? Like very mm -hmm. deliberately yourself, right? And I think like that's where it can be really powerful. 
So I think like that this is, I guess, the a kind the kind of existential question, right? It's like what like what are the conditions where you really feel like you're flourishing, right? And I think that like a big part of flourishing is when you put yourself in a situation where you feel like you're throwing yourself into something. Um, and that requires discipline and effort. And there's like an upshot to it. And I think like, you know, I think Matt's trying to find a way of expressing that in liberalism through dignified self-authorship. And I think religion tries to do that. Um, but then I think where where liberalism and sometimes ends up missing the mark, and this is me just kind of spitballing here in the moment, is that because there's no, um, because you can just choose to do it whatever, however way you want, people feel disoriented because they're like, okay, well, where am I going to find that flourishing? Because it's mm. like, no one's telling me where to go. It's just, I have to figure it out myself. And I think that can lead to a, like tremendous amounts of existential dread because you're like, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. But then on like the more traditional religious side, the bigger problem, which is the thing that liberalism came in, is the fact that sometimes it can feel arbitrary, right? Because you're just like, well, I don't know if I believe in doing it that way, right? You have all these messages externally. So rather than having to find it internally and be like disoriented, you have what can be like an oppressive structure that is that can feel arbitrary, um, and I know from my own experience, one of the things that I was always allergic to growing up and I was a bad student in high school and stuff like that is because uh, I just hated things that felt arbitrary. I hated things that I was like, well, why do why am I going to do that? I didn't like I don't care about that. Why are you forcing me to do my homework that I don't care about? Um, and then for me, like when I got to grad school, I just found something that I really that felt it was worthwhile to discipline myself and push myself to do it. And then, so anyway, all that kind of rant to say is that I think like some, whatever the answer, insofar as there can be an answer, which, you know, I'm skeptical about, it's like finding some middle ground between like it being arbitrary, but then also providing you some, some direction for how to like, you know, find that flourishing or self-authorship. Oh, sure. yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, there's just so much bad religion out there, right? I mean, there's no way escaping that. Um, and the confluence of between religion and culture as well are really kind of overlapping lines that, you know, kind of like the communitarian sort of critique, uh, you know, well, liberalism's critique of communitarianism is that it can be extremely oppressive and authoritarian on a certain level, which is something I was not that particularly sensitive to until <laughs> I discovered Matt's work, since I was coming very much from, you know, kind of a, a, a Charles Taylor sort of based approach. Although, you know, he doesn't come across like that, but I never really thought about, well, somebody like McIntyre, obviously, you know, I can go and see how that would come across as much more authoritarian. I'm, I'm curious, what's your, uh, what, what is like your kind of like background when it comes to like religion? If you don't mind me asking, like in your own yeah. life and stuff like well, that, like, well, like but and I mean, kind of you like find, you, like Taylor. Well, because my and philosophy in general, my well, I mean, I was a horrible student as well, basically in high school and moving into it. But I mean, I just developed a deep sense of learning, well, a love of reading and learning through my parents in a certain way. Um, but I mean, I grew up in Quebec. I'm a French Canadian, so I mean, in terms of everything that has to go and do with religion, is just so unbelievably toxic. But uh, in 83, my, my brother passed away. He died of leukemia. So it was a, a really shocking sort of event that hit our family. You know, obviously me and my mother and everybody around us to, you know, to go and witness, obviously, you know, a, a child. My brother, you know, he was not even eight years old when he passed away of leukemia. So it was oh. just a shattering sort of 
I mean, it just shattered our worldview, right? And then obviously our religion of the past was not going to go make any sense. I mean, it was very, you know, if you sit down with my parents, <laughs> talk to them about Catholicism, they'll go out and climb up the, the wall. <laughs> but my dad had a, a sufficient, I guess, kind of background in educational, um, like he started off as a gym teacher and then he did his MA in counseling psychology. So when my brother got ill, he was almost at the tail end of his MA in counseling psychology. So he had, you know, some stuff to fall back onto. Uh, so, you know, stuff around existential psychology. And then oh, obviously, cool. you know, that came in and, and informed a lot of the stuff that I saw around the house. But also, so I guess East Asian sort of traditions and uh, religions as well. Does he so take when the existential did, approach? Yeah. Uh, his, that's cool. I'm a big fan of Irvin Yalom, if you know who that is. Oh, He's for like, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I've read a few of his books. Like, I, I love I love the guy. I, yeah. I love his work and his approach to life. So that's cool. Yeah. No, so he was, you know, through and through a sort of humanistic and existential psychologist in terms of his kind of formation and background. But even then, I mean, that wasn't enough to really go out and weather the storm, you know, in terms of what would, you know, what happened to us as a family in a certain way. So that was kind of the context that I grew up in, kind of to go out and whatever. So once I, you know, became a teenager, I mean, I started to read a lot of that literature and I got really engrossed in that. And then eventually I decided to go back to university as a, as, you know, as a mature adult. I went back at 23. So I took mm. a few years off stage up and then I launched myself into religious studies. I think so I went back I to university at the same age too. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, because I also didn't go to university right after high school because I like I said, I had terrible grades. So like I, I just was languishing. I did like a college diploma and then I like worked for a little while in like retail and stuff and like didn't really know what I was doing. I think I oh yeah, I tried to be like a salesperson. Uh, that was the worst. Like I worked in an office <laughs> and then I, and then I think it was I think I was either 22 or 23. I think I feel like I was 23, maybe 22 yeah. when I went back to when I went back to Carlton because Carlton lets you it lets you enter as like a special student where you take like two courses and then depending on how you do in those, then they'll like maybe admit you full time. Right. Okay. Uh, which is what happened. So, yeah. Cool. And I guess that's kind of the, my question to you too, is, I mean, cause you and Matt both went at Carlton. So is that where you guys became buddies and started to? No, not at all. So yeah. So like the story of the pill pod is really, um, um, I guess it really Carlton, actually starts. So I, but you so did I, Carlton. I didn't, I, then... I didn't know Matt. I didn't know Matt until so I I did Carlton. Then I did Ryerson for an MA, okay. and then I went to York to do another master's in urban planning because I was always interested in urban issues. That was like my other kind of. I mean, I did political science in my undergrad too, but I didn't. It wasn't quite a double major. But even since I was a kid, I was really like I liked cities and urbanism. So I was like, okay, well maybe the academia path isn't for me. Maybe that's you know. Uh, so let me just get like a practical degree. I'll get a master's in urban planning. I can still maybe study some of the some stuff that interests me, and then I'll just get a job as a planner and I'll be like a bureaucrat or something. And I did that, um, and like you know, it was a good experience. And actually, um, it was too woke though. I mean, the, the environmental studies department at, at York. This was like even before like wokeness was really a term. But I remember. I mean, I can tell you a little like a story about that if you're curious, but I'll, I'll set that aside for now. Well, so, so I was my, at... <laughs> experience, my experience of not wanting to go and move on to graduate studies is essentially all around that as well. That's fun. I yeah, mean, I know. I, so... I had really bad experiences around, I guess, because I, I finished in 2013. And at that point, I needed to go out and decide. But I was just looking at graduate schools and thinking around in terms of how you go out and find somebody to go out and supervise you and everything else within that kind of 
environment at the time. I was just thought there's there's no way in hell I won't survive. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, you know, I will say that I think philosophy departments even now are somewhat protected from it. Like because the problem is that like um like all that rhetoric about like, well, this isn't up for debate, right? Like, like, you know, that like kind of like woke rhetoric about like you that's just doesn't work in philosophy department because philosophy by its nature, everything is up for debate. Like, right, you like like you can argue there's people who say that consciousness isn't real, right? That like, you know, that qualia is an illusion. So it's like, and that is like fundamental to our identity. So, like, how can you say that that's up for debate, but you can't debate like any other tr like trans issues or trans ontology, like like, yes, it's like still going to be a little bit um, edgy to do that. But I'm just saying like in philosophy, like I think if you pursuing graduate studies in philosophy in most places, um, it's it's like a lot of that annoying woke rhetoric just just doesn't work there because it can't because it's like it would go against what it is. Um, but anyway, so, yeah, I was so the pill pod just to, to, to kind of tell that story like. I, so when I was at Ryerson, there was a dude who was the year above me, um, uh, Kirk Longheed, who's actually a prof a professor in like, I want to say Lithuania now, uh, in like, and he's, a, and he was like a continental, no, sorry. He's not a continental philosopher. He's like an analytic philosopher of religion. <clears throat> and he was just a really cool guy. And we used to go drinking. I remember that we had we spent the summer. I think it was like the summer between either Ryerson and New York, or maybe it was my first summer. I can't remember which summer it was, but him and I were just hanging out all the time. We were just like drinking. And he was friends with pills <clears throat> independently. Okay. Um, and then when I went to York, he was like, Oh, like my friend is doing his PhD here. You should like hang out with him. And I think I'd met him like once or twice. I think I might have like gone to a party. Or something and then so like i and i was like living up at york in the in the graduate residence and like i had and i had friends in toronto but i didn't really like know anyone at york and like yeah i had a couple friends in my program but i mentioned before it was like a pretty woke environment and there was also like a lot of people who didn't care about philosophy who just wanted to be planners right and get their diplomas not that i need my friends to be interested in philosophy in fact most of my friends don't don't give a shit. but i just like was like i want to people to drink with and talk about ideas right when i'm at when i'm at this university so i reached out and I, and and uh and then one day he was like yeah like we're going to be at this campus bar the 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 absinthe cafe which is a great campus uh campus hole in the wall so i just showed up and started hanging out and then uh, one of the other guys was eric who's friends with him and matt was another guy who i actually didn't really meet for a while but he was also friends with him and eventually, like it was a slow process, but like I got introduced to Matt and I got introduced to these other people and we were really just like drinking buddies at York. And then it was like and we would like occasionally and there's actually a long time where we like kind of just I wouldn't say we like lost contact exactly, but it was one of those things where, you know, it's like that friend that you would like maybe meet for a drink like once every six months, you know, it's like uh, don't see them that often. Um, but then one day he just called me and he's like, hey, man, like I'm, I'm making this YouTube videos or I'm making I think I'd seen some of his YouTube videos. I'm thinking about doing a podcast and like these are the people who are, and I feel like you'd be good on it, too. And I was like, sure, why not? Give it a try. Let's do it. And then like Matt wasn't actually in it initially. It was like another dude from New York. Um, I, if you go back and listen to some of our really early episodes, I don't, um, you'll uh You'll yeah, see Chris, that there's someone. Chris else. was there as well. I mean, I remember Chris was Chris. on a few episodes. Yeah, um, but but he wasn't actually. There's another guy who's like a Lacanian, who was in a, in like the first couple episodes, uh, and then he him. left. 
Okay. And we were looking for someone else. And I was like, oh, we should bring Matt McManus in. Like he's got, he's like writing online all these articles all the time. He has like a pretty big Twitter following. And secretly I was like, oh, he'll be like my political ally. Like I want him, <laughs> I want, I want him in, you know, I was, that's what I was thinking because I knew that Matt and I like were really close on, uh, on like politics and in yeah, terms yeah. of thinking, like we're both friendly to continental philosophy, but also like, like the, the philosophical liberalism. It's like a, we're both kind of like a weird combination. I would say that that combination isn't usually that common. So I just wanted him in. And I just thought that way we would have like two people who are like really like, you know, theory postmodern is types. I mean, not to reduce, you know, Eric and pills to postmodernism exactly, but they're much more like in that, like, oh, like, and then I was like, and then there'd be two of us who'd be like more, you know, like liberal and political. And so, and then like, he just had a following. So that's how it happened. And we brought him in. And even when he came into the podcast, I will say that like Matt and I weren't even like super close friends at that point. Like I just like seen him around, but we didn't talk regularly. Now I would say that Matt and I are like very good friends. I would consider him one of my best friends. We'd be, we've cultivated like a great friendship. We talk like all the time. Um, so another, I would say maybe another motive of bringing him in too was because not only did I think he would be an ally, but I was like, I want, like, I like this guy. I want to be from like better friends with them. So, uh, so it worked out and that's, that's basically like the origin story. And we've kind of gone from there. No, I mean, it's been amazing to watch. I mean, I mean, the thing that I enjoy the most about it is that you guys are Canadian as well. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. Cause you know, like I'm, I'm constantly in a sea of, of American podcasts and thoughts, right. And things that are popping out. Uh, yeah, I always noticed that you you appreciated when we would cover Canadian topics. I feel like I always yeah. remember you uh, like either commenting or chiming in on like the episodes where we uh, where it was like covering some Canadian issue. Uh, so I yeah. could tell that you appreciated that. Yeah, no. And then, I mean, to me, it's just a testament too of a new cohort of young scholars that are coming up. Right. I mean, they're doing some amazing stuff either online or you know, in traditional sort of academic type settings or just, you know, movers and shakers in terms of of new thought there in terms of what's been coming up. I mean, that was the upshot that I had in terms of a bit of a conversation with Doug Lane to, to figure out, you know, in terms of, cause I'm, I'm a young gen X, so I'm a bit older, I think, than most of you guys like, but I'm younger than Doug. Um, so, but there is this element of sort of millennial socialism that that's been on the rise, right? There's this new level of consciousness. I think that has been wrestling with, you know, the, the context that we're swimming in. Um, which is, I mean, and some people are veering off, you know, far to the right and other people are moving more off to the left. And it seems to be this sort of, sort of battle of, of, uh, of ideas, but also of kind of political wills here on some levels as well. So it's been, that's funny. It's, millennial, it's, millennial, uh, socialism. I like that. And then wh- how do you, how would you characterize like the Gen Z years too? Because they're like a whole other, I feel like they're, they're even more like, I don't know. I feel like they're very fractured. I like know this because I'm kind of friends with Isocratic. He's like a Gen Z, you know, uh, guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen him and like and then like mouthy infidel, right? Who's like more on the streaming world. But man, that kid is super smart. I don't know if you've like uh, consumed any of his content. We had him on once and I think I've got me and Matt went on. um, He's just like 19 years old, but this kid is super smart. Uh, Wow. Like really, he's honestly he's thinking at the like I would say that he is. 
probably like thinking at the level of like a master's philosophy student. Uh, he's he like makes videos um, that are like he did like a two hour video, like an egalitarian or like a defense of egalitarian justice. And he like reads G.A. Cohen and all these people. Uh, he's an impressive kid. But anyway, so like these are like the some of the Gen Z. I've got my finger on the pulse of Gen Z a little bit, at least through these two guys. Yeah. No, it's to me, it's, I mean, it's been amazing to go out and watch. And I mean, the, like, again, back to the fact that you guys are from TO and I mean, it's TO has always been an interesting hub for, for thinking. And even did York, you used to live here or no? No, I mean, born and raised in Montreal, but I mean, obviously because of Leo Panich up at York and, you know, there's a few oh, intellectuals yeah, sure. that, that came through there very much on the, on the left that are yeah. uh, that have had somewhat of an impact on some of my thinking i guess yeah yeah so matt and i grew up in ottawa although like i said i didn't know him until i was in toronto and then pills is actually from british columbia originally but he did his his stuff and then i think eric is from toronto but i don't even know that actually okay but you oh, i think i think i think like i think he's from like um southern ontario like, I feel like he might be from like Oakville or like Burlington or one of those places, if you know oh, where they okay. are. I think but that's did where you his parents grew up in South America, though. Cause I, from few my parents are from Chile, but I, okay. I, I, I was born in Ottawa. Uh, born okay. So you're born Ottawa. and raised in Ottawa. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, that's the other thing, too, is I mean, like, kind of like you said, in terms of the cosmopolitan sort of idea of culture, that for some people, it either becomes a huge sort of rallying point for certain people, and for others, it's not. I mean, that's the other thing too that I really enjoyed about your piece is that um, because you clearly go out and differentiate that, right? And that, you know, there's a, I feel like, you, you know, you're highlighting some sort of danger there as well that, you know, that if religion merges with culture, it could be, uh, become unbelievably toxic in terms of how it, uh, you know, can go. Out and, and that's what the new right goes out and represents to me, you know, and what Matt's been talking about in terms of postmodern conservatism. Um, there's this deep sort of scary regressive sort of streak through it that could I feel like that can go off the rails on some certain levels. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah, know? totally. I mean, I mean, uh, yeah, like, and I guess what's interesting too about postmodern conservatism and like the new right is, well, I guess because, well, yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to put all these different traditions together, but yeah, I guess most of the, new right like post-liberalism like adrian vermule i know he wrote that common good constitutionalism book recently right and like the whole idea is you know you want to appeal explicitly to like traditional values <clears throat> and traditional conceptions of the good that are going to be rooted in in religion um i don't know yeah and like i mean that just opens the door to like a bunch of scary stuff i think and i and i think matt might, i don't know if you read matt's review of that book specifically but he kind of touches on on like how it just opens the door when you're gonna like base like legal well and and you know adrian vermule is actually like a legal scholar right so like if you're gonna you're gonna um you know base legal decisions on like some idea of like common good the common good but the common good being like i guess traditional moral values that most people like like with their common sense would accept common sense i guess being being based on some form of judeo-christian religiosity yeah, it opens the door to all kinds of like, I think, pretty crazy outcomes. Um, <clears throat> but I think, yeah, I mean, I think that th this is really um, a reaction to, 
you know, our, I guess, postmodern condition of just being like, well, I don't know what, like, this doesn't seem to be working as well as we wanted it to. This doesn't seem to be giving us, um, I guess all, it doesn't seem to be um, fulfilling the promise of modernity exactly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I do, I do feel like things are, th- we're, we're kind of at this point where uh, people don't really know what to do next or what to, what to fight for. You know, I think we see it. But even on, on what the they're line. fighting for is weird because, I mean, they don't obviously self-identify as postmodern conservatives. We tend to <clears throat> no. see them that way, which is kind of fun. Well, I don't know. Well, here's the interesting thing is like I was actually at the beginning of my early of my last response. I was a little I was struggling there because I'm not sure if I would count some of this new right. Like, I don't know. Would Matt call? I don't know if Matt would call like Adrian Vermeule, for example, postmodern conservatives because they are appealing to some traditional eternal values. Yeah. Right. But then like the postmodern conservative streak, I think, is more the Trump phenomenon or like where there's kind of like this. Um, I'll do whatever is necessary uh, to just like win. And it doesn't matter if I'm like appealing to these traditional values because I just like I'm going to do whatever is necessary and uh, it's going to be disconnected from any particularly coherent view of the world. So like that was that I I don't know I mean it'd be interesting if but I think I feel like Matt has probably said that some of these post liberals well are it's kind not of clear though exactly like it's you said clear. though because I mean some of them are trads I mean they're literally I mean they're conservative trads in a certain way and you know Catholic integralism is a weird ass type of oh yeah worldview either which way but you know in national conservatism like if you follow uh, Hazoni's t- kind of line of thought. Like, it's strange, too, because they're saying that, you know, they're for nationalism, yet it seems to be almost a quasi-international national conservative movement, right? It's popping up in all these other countries across different continents. So is it really some form of just, you know, and that seems pretty modern in terms of interpretation of what, although he's using the Bible to go and unpack it in certain ways. But then you have guys like Douglas Murray, right, that are clearly you know, conservative, but they're a new brand of conservatism, right? I mean, they're out and they're gay and yet they're embracing some form of Christianity. Although he doesn't go out and say he's a Christian. He says that he's some sort of cultural Christian, which is just some weird kind of like, and then obviously you have Trump. I mean, Trump is just some weird ass, like phenomena. Like he's just and do whatever the hell he wants whenever. And it's just really is this post-truth I was gonna ask. Yeah, I was gonna ask about. Uh, sorry, I was gonna ask about uh, the integralism because I noted, like, because like your name on Twitter, like you, you, you adopt a different, a different <laughs> sense of integral, right? So, yeah, I'm, I was wanting to ask you about that because like yeah. integralism obviously has taken on a, a new meaning recently. Yeah, but I think like you, you, you were thinking, and I feel like I remember you talking about it in the Discord back in the day. Yeah, like integral philosophy, which is obviously not to be confused with Catholic integralism, right? No, so yeah, no, exactly, <laughs> no, and that's a bit of a joke too. That with, uh, well, because I guess because I guess somebody that might speak to you guys that came up in the Discord a few times is Matt Segal. Oh yeah, who is yeah. the German idealist sort of scholar or in-house scholar up at the California Institute of Integral Studies, and. The kid, they, well, that's what it is, right? It's that frame of integral sort of thinking. Um, but the integral philosophy uh, that grew around, I guess, California Institute of Integral Studies is influenced by a guy called Ken Wilber that maybe you've been seeing bounce around sort of on the intellectual dark web at times at various points and, you know, and stuff like that. So there is 
and Michael Brooks. That's what drew me into Michael Brooks' work because, um, well, when I discovered Matt's writing and stuff like that, I wasn't following everything that was going on very closely around Jacobin. Um, and then once I start to go and see some of the collaboration with Michael Brooks, I start to follow it a little more closely because I discovered that he was, he grew up very much like me in a sort of humanistic existential sort of progressive type of household. Um, and that he eventually got exposed to Ken Wilber's integral theory and framework and writing as a, you know, kind of a, a young teenager, eventually moving into his young adulthoods before he went into doing his degree in, uh, international relations. So that's gone out and informed my way of thinking. But obviously, when I went to university, I mean, you get slammed pretty hard <laughs> with things you're reading as a teenager. So Ken Wilber was not welcomed in academia, because he's not considered to be academic, right? Um, or he's perceived to, to go and be very on the fridge of what academia is in new age in a certain way because of his association with, you know, organizations like the California Institute of Integral Studies. They're not. Uh, is that not accredited like as a university of that place? Like, uh, no, it maybe. is. I, I mean, it's a it's a legit it's what I thought. You know, university and college and stuff like that you can go to. But I mean, it's a, it's an alternative college. It's not your standard, you know, public college yeah that nick university. that nick's is it seagal or chagall matt seagall yeah matt seagall exactly. yeah Seagal. matt seagall i feel like i was confusing him nick seagall someone else i feel like <laughs> um, yeah so his um, background is very much in german idealism yeah yeah and I, a lot I know, of people I know. that I, rem I remember his old youtube videos like i feel like he was making philosophy youtube videos for like over 10 years right like he's been he's been doing yeah like his musings on youtube for a really long time and he is like a little he, he does come across like a little new agey. I remember like sometimes like yeah. some of his musings. So like, uh, and then I guess integral studies is like, has like that, that, that I guess, um, reputation or something. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, California Institute of integral studies was originally called the, uh, California Institute of, uh, East Asian studies. So it okay. started off as a religious sort of, uh, religious studies, uh, Institute that was associated with Berkeley back in the day that cool. you know attracted people like alan watts cool <laughs> 1960s <laughs> counterculture type of uh, guys and stuff like that nice. nice so i mean that's where i kind of got exposed to that kind of so i mean that's swimming around now in a lot of the stuff around the intellectual dark web right and i mean obviously michael brooks ended up at the stoa uh ben burgess now has been there as well um you know i've been kind of <laughs> knocking the hope to see uh, some of you guys eventually get picked up by either Rebel Wisdom or the Stoa to go on there and talk about uh, postmodern conservatism because it's uh, it's so pertinent, I think, in terms of uh, a worldview to go and understand in terms of our contemporary kind of moment right now. Yeah, Matt should um, definitely be a guest on the Stoa. I, I sometimes check them out. Um, do you know the guy or have you ever talked to that guy? What's his name? The Limburg. 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 Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Yeah. And I mean, because I mean, it's it's quasi well philosophy in a certain way. Right. But I mean, stoicism, the revival of stoicism as a movement is weird. <laughs> yeah, he has the stoa. What I, I think what I find interesting is uh, like it seems like he'll just have anyone on who is my like who is this isn't like a critique. Like he'll just have anyone on who he thinks is kind of interesting or worth talking to. Um, but I think he he gets accused of being a reactionary, right? Because he's had a lot of reactionary people. Like, didn't he have uh, 
like I feel like well he had Millerman on which whatever is fine we tried Matt and I tried to get him on because we wanted to you know try, argue with him about Dugan but he, uh, he, okay, he, cool. he very politely declined um uh we also but like he had that guy who's like a monarchist what's his name on uh oh yeah the uh oh yeah he was just on unheard as well there too the guy who was associated with peter Thiel. i can't remember yeah maybe and then and yeah and like maybe he's also like considered to be in the same family as that that dude on on, um nick land you know like like dark enlightenment stuff or whatever the okay yeah no there's much about yeah but that is a new phenomenon too, right? I mean, around with podcasts um, or even shows like Michael Brooks, right? Through social media and, you know, online kind of YouTube channels and stuff like that. There's this whole new media ecosystem that is quasi-academic on some levels. And on some levels, you know, it's like pushing into all kinds of weird territory. I mean, you could go and smear it as being new agey, some of it maybe even you know, conspiracy type theory type stuff around the IDW type thinking. But I mean, there's still movements out there that people have been addressing, you know, very much from the left. And I mean, Michael Brooks, I mean, that's another thing too. I mean, most of the pods that I've done is really to go and pick people's brains in terms of, you know, what they make about Michael Brooks show his legacy and his thinking and stuff like that, because um, well, one, my own personal interests around his thinking around uh, cosmopolitanism, but also the mm-hmm. fact that he was integrally informed with integral theory has been an interesting conversation for me to, to sit back and pick people's brains and stuff like that and, and try and make sense of it. Yeah, that's super interesting. I didn't actually know that he, he was uh, like interested in integral uh, approaches. So yeah, like that's kind of news to me. I don't, and I know Matt's working on like a book about Michael Brooks too. I think that, I don't know if that's done or if that's coming out soon. Um, yeah, he so said yeah, it was I mean, in the pipe when, uh, we talked in terms of, uh, social, um, uh, well, cosmopolitan socialism. So he's picking yeah. up on Michael's idea, which he kind of writes about in this most recent book as well. Um, which is interesting too, because I mean, I guess cosmopolitanism in a certain way has fallen on rough times too now. Right? <laughs> yeah, is- for sure. I mean, I, I think in some ways it's a bit of a dirty word, uh, cosmopolitanism. Um, and I think, I mean, I think it gets a bad rep from both sides. I mean, maybe for the reason that like I even highlighted in this introduction, because I think cosmopolitanism can be associated with a kind of li- like species of liberal neutrality in like the bad sense which is like oh well like cosmopolitan like there's no like like particularity is irrelevant right like particularity of culture particularity of people that shouldn't matter right like what should matter is like everyone getting along let's like destroy difference right like like you know the 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 kind of caricature of cosmopolitanism is like destroy difference you know globalization i think maybe it gets associated with globalization and maybe even like neoliberalism for the like uninformed in a way um i mean there's a lot of versions of cosmopolitanism obviously and you know the and then it gets bunched up like on the right people will associate it with that you know their fears of like a world government and all that stuff and and then and then, yeah, and then I said, like I said on, on the left, I think just people associated with that kind of like destruction of difference, destruction of of particular cultures. Um, and I think so. So I think that for the, for those reasons, um, p- 
people tend to be um, tend to be biased against the ideas of cosmopolitanism. And then also like maybe it gets associated with, you know, in Canada, right, we have this this multiculturalism idea, right, that we're, we're so supposed to be so proud of which always gets mercilessly critiqued as, you know, being whatever, um, you know, and not without merit as kind of a, like a bumper sticker. Yeah, yeah, exactly. National sort of state, whatever that goes out. Exactly. Exactly. So it's kind of like a, like a, or like a bumper sticker value of just like, you know, multiculturalism. It's kind of like thin, it's shallow. It's not like there's, there's no substance to it. It's just, so I think for all those reasons, people uh, don't, are, don't really like the idea of cosmopolitanism. And yeah, like, you know, I think Michael Brooks was trying to locate a, a, and defend a, a version of it, uh, trying to trying to rescue the good in it. Um, but, you know, I actually don't know. I haven't read Michael, um, Michael Brooks's book uh, Against the Web. So I'm not actually super familiar with like the precise conception of his argument, other than just what I've seen him talk about on YouTube videos when he was doing that. Um, oh, you got to! I know that what I heard yeah, you was would appealing. Love it. Particularly oh, yeah, I'm sure I would. With I know I would. Some of the stuff that you guys have been talking about, and like in terms of against the IDW or Jordan Peterson and stuff like that. Yeah, is, totally. Uh, it's dead on in terms of a book. No, for yeah. sure. No, no, and totally. uh, uh, I guess well, this is the other thing too. I mean, so, um, because I mean, your background, since you say you kind of are, I mean, you you kind of adhere to a sort of cosmopolitan worldview and stuff like that or you're not that preoccupied i guess with culture um i mean what do you make of canada or canada's role i guess right now in in this kind of you know context right now what do you think because that was kind of a bit of the conversation i had too with matt is that i'm curious because you know with the show that you guys are doing you guys are canadians and I'm wondering, you know, like how, how do you view Canada and what do you think Canada's role should be like when we're interacting with some of these other actors on sort of the international scene and stuff like that? And does Canada have yeah. a, a sort of important critical role to play? Yeah, totally. I mean, I would say, so I want to pick up on one, on one of the first things you said, which is just highlighting the fact that like I have kind of like a cosmopolitan worldview and then I'll talk about Canada a little bit. And I want to kind of just clarify that I think I have a like I think I probably do have some kind of like like not super thought out version of cosmopolitanism that probably matches up with what Michael Brooks argues for. <clears throat> but when I say like I like I feel cosmopolitan, it's more of like a dispositional attitude. It's like I just feel like I have a personality that is cosmopolitan in the fact that like I don't feel any attachment like to any culture. Like, I guess to some extent I feel attached to Canada because I'm used to it, but it's not because like, but I have no fixation on like any, anything like any Canadian-ness exactly. Um, and like, I certainly have no attachment to like my parents being from Chile. I mean, I have like, I like going back to Chile. I've been a few times, like I like the food and, and to some extent I like their attitude towards life In other ways. I don't like their attitude towards life. Uh, you know, I think that Latin American countries, Chile specifically, it's a very low trust society, <laughs> a low trust in institutions, low trust in their fellow citizens. So I don't like that part of it. Um, but yeah. So like when I talk about my cosmopolitanism, it's really more of like a personality, right? So in some ways the, the importance of that mm-hmm. is that I'm not like committed to it in like a exactly a philosophical sense right like i understand that other people don't have that personality right like i understand that it's like a personality that is particular to me 
that I don't really have that many attachments. And in fact, I, I, I've speculated that part of the reason for that might be because when my parents moved here, I think my dad was just like, you know, I just want us to be Canadian. Like, so I'm not going to hang around with like, I don't want all of our friends to be like other Latin Americans. Right. Cause you know, some people move to a new country and they kind of just stay in the diaspora. Right. And they, they stay. And like, so I never went to any, you know, community centers or anything that were like Latin American. I never hung around with like, and I remember when I got one of my, my first job at a grocery store, there was this other guy who was Latin American too. I think he's from El Salvador. And he was like, Oh, your parents are Chilean. Like how come I've never seen you at like, whatever, I guess there's like some Latin American community in the neighborhood. And I'm just like, I don't know. And then I asked my parents and that was when they told me, they're like, well, we just didn't want, want to be like pigeonholed to like whatever culture we're from. Right. So I think that's part of the reason I got, I had no, no attachment to it. Um, yeah. And then, and then, and then in terms of just like Canada itself. Yeah. I mean, there's the question about like what, what I think of them, of it on, on the world stage. Or I even mean, just vis-a-vis the, our southern neighbors. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think Canada is a is a weird place because we're basically like America, but we're but like we also define ourselves as not being American. Yeah. Uh, and like and like I know that it's different in Quebec. Like you're from Montreal. So I think like 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 Quebec is really like the only part of Canada that it actually feels like a different country. Um, yeah. And I'm from Ottawa, right? So like I was right there on the border with Quebec and I would go to Gatineau all the time. And, and like, so I had, I have more. And Ottawa is I, pretty yeah. bilingual as, you know. It is pretty bilingual. I mean, oh yeah. Like in Ottawa, I mean, in Ottawa, just like being downtown, being in the market, being wherever, like, like chances are you're going to hear someone speaking French, like, like yeah. somewhere around. Right. Like for sure. Whereas like in Toronto, I remember the first time I heard someone speaking French, I was like, oh, wow. Like, I feel like, and I, and then that actually made me realize how often I spoke French. I heard French in, in Ottawa. Because of how rarely, and actually kind of like a a little, a funny aside, like as a total Anglo, although, yeah, like, I mean, my parents, I do have some Spanish because of my parents, but I'm pretty much an Anglo. Uh, And I remember when I first got on the subway, I was like, oh, wow, the announcements are only in English. And like, I will say (laughs) guiltily, like afterwards, I was like, this is nice. (laughs) Like only in English. You know, uh, you know, I'm an asshole, but but that's just that's how I felt. I was just like, wow, it's like, and I was like, wow, Toronto really is. Well, it's 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 a it's a it's a real tension in the country. It's something that we face day in and day out. I mean, and even more so, I think, south of the border, right? Because if we do take ourselves, you know, like as a you know, on the global scene, then we do need to go out and compete. And if you have to go out and compete in two languages, it's difficult. I mean, there's no, I mean, I could see why some Anglos would be like, fuck that. It's costing us money or it's this or that defund the CBC type nonsense that we're seeing. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, like why should we pay for the CBC and Radio Canada? Like it just doesn't make any sense in terms of. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, I will say though, like, even though I did have that feeling of like, Oh, this is nice. Um, you know, and maybe this is a consequence of me, you know, being from Ottawa, but like, I love that Quebec exists. I love that Quebec is in Canada um i love going there and like even though it it's like annoying that i don't speak french but like i just i like it uh, i i like that it's there i have like nostalgia for it i have nostalgia for it existing um you know i le- I, I think i love talking to you know uh, uh, quebecers because they, they, there's just like a i i, I like I, I like that canada had to 
figure out a way for us to live together. Uh, well, to, to fight off the Americans. <laughs> well, yes, the, the, yeah, that's, sure, to fight off the Americans. But, but you know, even even if the Americans weren't, I mean, it's that's a that's a whole other conversation, I guess. But but just like the fact that we're like, okay, well, we're all going to be the same country, but we have to figure out a way to like live together and like the compromises. And I think that, and I think that having Quebec is actually maybe like an under discussed reason for why. Canada couldn't really create an, a, a single patriotic identity because yeah. it's like, as soon as you try to put your thumb on being like, this is what Canada is. You're like, well, there's Quebec. So like, what do you mean that that's what Canada is? So it's like, so it prevented <laughs> it, like forced us yeah. to just like be kind of the, this weird kind of proto cosmopolitan, like non-nationalist nationalism and like multiculturalism, I think as that sort of like bumper sticker Canadian idea is really a consequence of of having to be a, a, a bilingual, multicultural, well, well, bicultural, I guess at the beginning country um, that just like prevented us from being like, this is what it means to be Canadian. And I think in some ways that's a good thing. I mean, a lot of people, I, I like, even I like you, that. When, some people don't scratch, like it. Like when it. you really scratch it though, because I grew up in a very Pierre Trudeau, not Justin Trudeau sort of family. And I mean, when he decided to go out and run, I mean, the joke was, is that, you know, he said, he says, yeah, I would run for the, the social Democrats, but we'll never win. So I'm running for the liberals and I'm going to try to go out and move everything to the left. Right. And he's smeared and hated for that in a certain way, but another way he's revered and, and, uh, and love for that. Um, and even now, Justin Trudeau, when I think about it, right. I mean, hate him or love him. I mean, he's eating the NDP's lunch, right? Yeah. Yeah. He he's is. eating it. Right. I mean, like he's managed to go out because he is a progressive and he is far enough on the left that all of a sudden he makes, you know, the, the Green Party and the NDP almost irrelevant in a certain way. And that's how he's managed to go. Out and Although the NDP now will say that uh, we'll say that they're going to take credit for pushing him on like, yeah. the child care stuff. Right. And, and all that other stuff, which. I mean, I think it's probably true that he wouldn't have exactly done all of those things if it wasn't for needing the NDP support. But like you said, I think because of the fact that Justin Trudeau is actually like probably like has more progressive tendencies than your average liberal uh, liberal leader, uh, he was probably pretty happy to to be forced to do those things, yeah. right? Like like in some and ways, I just love yeah. seeing Justin, uh, I mean, not Justin, but uh, Jordan Peterson's Trudeau. <laughs> <laughs> like if you want to see somebody get totally triggered and go off his rocker and <laughs> my favorite my favorite are those episodes just put a photo of justin trudeau up somewhere and see what happens to jordan peterson <laughs> yeah you know the thing that is annoying about justin trudeau though probably i don't even know if jordan peterson would is mad about like those policies as much as he just hates uh all the lip service that jordan that that justin trudeau gives to like wokeness and identity politics right yeah. i think that's the thing that really gets under his skin that's the thing that gets under my dad's skin too i will say that like my dad is like otherwise fairly progressive but for whatever reason just like hates the like kind of woke rhetoric and i think that there probably are a lot of people in the older generation who would otherwise agree with a lot of the policy proposals that Justin Trudeau wants to put in. But then when it comes to all the cultural stuff, the race stuff, the paying lip service and like the kind of self congratulatory ceremony of just being like, look how many like women and transgender and this and this and this and like all this talk. And I think it just like rubs a certain kind of older demographic person like the wrong way. Uh, and in some ways, like I kind of wish that he would cool it on that stuff because I think that that like uh, it does alienate some people. And I think that I don't know. 
it like what the strategic upshot is like i don't know how many people are actually voting for justin Trudeau because he's saying all that like woke stuff like i feel like the really woke people like don't like him anyway right like 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 so i don't actually know if he's winning anyone over maybe it's just that he that people aren't like yelling at him for not doing it maybe it's like silences them but i actually don't even understand what the political upshot is of like riding that horse uh uh so so long is exactly yeah no and i mean to me i mean this is what i've been kind of contemplated and been to like because if trump does come back or if something really goes off the rail south of the border like i mean god forbid i mean some people are even talking civil war i mean if it does go to that kind of extreme and we have some sort of failed state south of our border i mean what would we do <laughs> yeah i actually it's, you know you know, I actually like, don't understand what's going to happen in the States. Actually, one of the questions we asked of Greg Sargent when we had him on was like, uh, I actually asked him, you know, what, you know, people talk about civil war, you know, but things are really bad. Like, like, like I was like, give me your like realistic worst case scenario, right? Like what's a worst case scenario that like doesn't seem super far fetched to you. And he, the, the, the answer he had was just, I could see the Republicans actually stealing an election in the sense of just deciding to send their own electors, right? So like even if the electoral college says one thing, if like that the state house is controlled by the Republicans, he's like, I could see them just sending their own electors anyway. Um, and then if that happens, then you're gonna see violence in the streets and stuff like that. Um, but he was like, I don't know if that's gonna lead to an, an all-out civil war, but like, you know, a lot of civic and civil unrest, he says, seems plausible to him pretty plausible to him but still he's like somewhat far-fetched and you know I, to be fair i don't think they're going to need to steal an election because i think they're just going to crush it anyway <laughs> <laughs> it could be so, yeah. yeah no but i mean i mean my fear is just violence on some sort of level yeah I mean, so violence is definitely i think on the table uh yeah because if they if things keep going now and then the roe v wade like thing which is probably going to be overturned if you know i mean it's an accurate draft opinion and the likelihood of one of those justices flipping, I think, seems pretty low. So we're going to see Roe v. Wade overturned. And like, I mean, all this stuff is just stoking the fires of civil unrest. So yeah. it's just not it's not going to be pretty. And then and then we're going to see the Republicans, if they control the House, they're probably going to try to pass a, an abortion ban. Right. So like once Roe v. Wade is overturned, it's supposed to be at the state level for them to for each state to decide their abortion laws. But I could see them trying to push um an all-out national ban on abortions um and probably removing the filibuster to do that uh, yeah so i mean there's all these i mean things are just not looking good no. <laughs> like at all no it's wild no it's uh when i think about it in terms of that but i mean it's it's just got me thinking much more you know in terms of because i mean we're so we're so inundated with american news and everything else yeah. i mean that's why i mean even in terms of me going out and starting the pod is that i want to go and you know, I started off around stuff with Michael Brooks and the idea of cosmopolitanism, but I'm very interested as well in terms of, you know, like kind of the Canadian uh, role in, in a sort of cosmopolitan sort of worldview, right? If we are moving towards that, what does, you know, Canada as a nation state have to offer compared to everything else that's going on in the world right now? And uh, I mean, that was a question I posed to, to Matt too, right? Because what I see is so exciting when I hear guys like like Pills in terms of, you know, putting out his content and you now finishing off your PhD and Matt as a young prof. I mean, you guys are a new cohort of Canadian intellectuals that are moving out there and rattling and shaking things off. Um, 
just the way Ben Burgess is, you know, like I look at Ben and he's, you know, a bit of a, you know, he's got his crew down in the US, but in Canada, all of a sudden we're seeing this sort of this new sort of wrestling with ideas or history of ideas and trying to figure out, you know, like well, what kind of philosophy or political theory would go out and uh, address some of these malaises. So I'm yeah, yeah. excited. I'm, I'm just like, that, that's why, like as a bit of an older Gen X where I felt that like my generation was a bit of a failure, like, cause because we we're just overshadowed by boomers mm-hmm, to see you mm-hmm. guys really go out there. <laughs> Uh, and shake things up in a certain way. I mean, Bernie was not a win in terms of millennial socialism, but that there's a new wave of leftism that is emerging there, and there's a lot of creative thinking that's happening. So I'm I'm super pumped. Um, yeah, totally. Um, I was to gonna see what you, you know, guys I, are gonna do next. No, totally, man. Um, I appreciate that a lot. I think. I realize I didn't really like answer your question either about what I think Canada has to offer, you know, on the world stage or like philosophically or like, is there, you know, when I was at Ryerson, there was a professor, she's now retired, Betty Trot, And uh, she, she, she was interested in Canadian philosophy. She was trying to like identify like what is a Canadian and she would, you know, and it was not, you know, she's kind of like old school conservative a little bit. And, uh, you know, so so she wasn't locating it necessarily in like indigenous uh, stuff, right? Like she was thinking about it from like kind of, and she actually connected a lot, like uh, Hegel, and I think maybe like is John Watson Canadian or maybe he's someone else? Yeah. I forget. She used to name. Is he Canadian? Yeah, he's Canadian as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's that was part her guy. of the British idealism. In terms exactly, exactly. Yeah. So she always identified it with uh, with John Watson and kind of this idealism, this sort of like Hegelian pragmatism i guess she thought was like a way of identifying like canada's choices canada's paths and i think there's something to that i think i think canada is much more a a country of compromise when compared to the united states i think the united states is a country of extremes it's 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 a country of you know the best and the worst right the best examples of human achievement and the worst examples of, of 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 misery and failure and and inequality and I think you see it even with their university system, right? It's like they've got the best universities in the world, but it's like, and then Canada is just like compromise, pragmatic. It's like, well, let's just make the universities like, you know, public and they're all basically the same, right? Like, yeah, sure. Like the U of T and McGill are like better, but like, are they like, like, I feel like you like any, like, I mean, any <laughs> university like in Canada has like the same experience, I think like roughly where it's like in the States, there really is like a difference. Like, you know, you go to like a state, a shitty state school, versus like one of the you know top 10 or top 20. i mean it's yeah, like a ID. huge difference in like your your employability like in canada i don't think it matters like 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 you know going to like you like u of t or mcgill like for getting a job in like some office like i don't think they actually care that much like like no. um where no you, it there, is there's, there's not stark differences there in terms of yeah but and the other thing too is just because i mean depending how you go out and interpret brexit as well i mean if you know, like, because Brexit, I don't know if you can go out and see that as a sort of failure of the European Union, right? Or the beginning of the failure of Maybe. the European Union. And if that's the case. I mean, I, case, see that, I see that as more of a failure of David Cameron than I do of a failure of the European <laughs> Union. I think he really, he really, that was a big blunder on his part. Yeah. I don't know. I think the European Union, I think the European Union is actually now stronger than ever because of the Ukraine crisis. Oh shit! Yeah, that's a definitely a new factor there in there. But so I think that that's, before that's Brexit, a... all of a sudden, I saw, I was thinking maybe that you know, well, Canada will go and be viewed or interpreted quite differently because 
we are still, you know, a nation state. I mean, we're still, you know, a country in a certain sense, right? And it is wrestling with deep issues, not deep issues, but a deep sort of multiculturalism. And what does that actually go out and look like? So we, well, and I think we also choose, we also choose to deal with it with this kind of pragmatism, I think like, you know, and even I was going to say too, like, even with our constant, like the way our constitution works, you know, I mean, it's criticized a lot for having the notwithstanding clause, if you know what that is, right? Where like, um, you know, you can, you uh, like, like provinces can pass laws that actually violate the charter of rights and freedoms in the constitution. But as long as they invoke the notwithstanding clause, um, I think it's like a trigger. It's like reviewed every three years, right? They can, they can basically violate the, the constitution and Quebec's been doing that for their language laws, you know, the whole time, right. So that they can have like, like French only, um, because the the charter clearly says that you have a right to services in both English and French, and uh, Quebec violates that by saying we're only going to offer certain things in French. Yeah, um, and no, I and think that's why they've been playing. They've been playing chicken with it too, right? They know. But that I think that that's. Go... But in some ways, like I feel like this is, to me, such an exemplification of Canadian compromise. It's it's like, <laughs> it's like okay, like yeah, we'll have this charter of rights and freedoms that's like pretty robust, but you know, maybe you can violate it every once in a while. Like that's so different than like this American attitude of like this sacred constitution, right? That, that, that shall never be violated. Or, um, you know, some people think it's like really dangerous and bad that we have this notwithstanding clause. And yeah, like it's true that Doug Ford almost was thinking about invoking the notwithstanding clause, but I do think that there are political consequences for doing something like that. And I think, you know, um, I've been having some conversations on, on Twitter with people about, um, checks and balances right and like the fact that in the states you can't get anything done because you need 60 senators and and people are you know and i think that like in canada it's so different because it's like if you win all the seats you just get to do whatever you want pretty much right and then but then like the but the check on that is that next time someone else might get it voted in and they, they can undo everything and i don't think that that's a bad thing i think that that's like a good way of managing a country because then you get to see how those policies unfold um, and then the voters can kind of decide whether or not they like it. And then they can vote based on that rather than a system where like nothing gets done. And then everyone's blaming the other side for nothing getting done. Um, so I guess all that to say, like, I think our system like works in like a pragmatically good way, but I would also say it's like, you know, it's not the best, right? I think a lot of European countries are better than us when it comes to at least like social safety nets and, and all that stuff. We're kind of, I, like I said, I feel like we're just such a compromise between like European like ways of doing things that that makes sense, right? Like like you know having a single payer healthcare system, but then because like we got America right there, it's like I feel like we're almost like this kind of in between place where we're yeah. like, well, you know, those things make sense. We have to be competitive with the states, but we want to make sure that we have you know services for our citizens, and we'll do it this way and. Um, so it's, it's, it's more boring, but I think like, um, but more stable and, and I think like, just like more sensible, <laughs> uh, it's just a sensible, pragmatic place, yeah. uh, that is doing its best to have everyone get along. Uh, and that's kind of how I see Canada <laughs> as just like a sensible, pragmatic place. Yeah, it's no, it, it is. I mean, well, the, a lot of the people just say think, or when they think about Canada, it's just some boring place. It's <laughs> usually their go to. It's like there's sure. nothing exciting in a certain way. Uh, but I mean, there's. I mean, like when I was talking to Ben, I, I was laughing because Montreal's you know, pretty like, exciting. <laughs> oh well, we have the best party scene. In yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you're gonna come party, come to Montreal. Oh, it yeah. rocks. 
but when I was talking to Ben, I mean, the joke was is that, you know, like we exported our best, right? We're sending Jordan Peterson down to the U.S. And I was just like, oh, you can keep him along yeah, with Yeah, you can Steven keep, you can keep, you could keep Gavin McInnes. You could keep, uh, you could keep, uh, what's her name? Lauren Southern. You could keep, why do we have, we produce all these weird reactionaries. Weird, who exactly. The it's so strange. Yeah. No, and we export them. I mean, they yeah. take them. I mean, it's been a strange mix of, uh, no, that, that part is, uh, no, I mean, and that's why, I mean, like in terms of my pod and, uh, unpacking some of this stuff and also, I guess, seeing what you guys are doing and there's some other people as well that are, you know, they're talking a lot more, um, of uniting in terms of like Canadian podcasts to go and form some sort of unified, not unified front, but to take on basically the onslaught of American media that just floods our airwaves, right? And that if we can to go, you know, just highlight and, uh, you know, and say in the show the best ones, I mean, in the pill pod and what you guys have been doing, I mean, amazing, probably one of the better philosophy pods out there that, you know, that goes under the radar possibly as being American, but if you listen (laughs) to it carefully, (laughs) we know. Yeah, it comes up. Some people aren't sure. Um, but I think we talked, we mentioned it, I think in often enough, um, was gonna say yeah do you ever talk to gordon kaddick uh and his darts and letters podcast He's yeah like a, no yeah that's another one another canadian one yeah. exactly yeah yeah, yeah. yeah well, i've hung out with him a couple of times because he lives in toronto he's a great guy i would recommend getting in touch with him you should try to you should have him on he's a and have a listen to some of his stuff because he's a super nice interesting guy and like i think another another canadian um i think like another one of those i guess canadian podcasts that's trying to be sort of philosophical and political um so yeah i would definitely recommend him you made me think of him because you said when you mentioned you know like like you like canadian podcasts kind of uniting or whatever like that's one of his things too he was like we should well at least in toronto i remember he 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 was like we should all you know um get this like you know toronto leftist collective he wants to like start something like that and i was like you know and that maybe cool. it's more for like drinking beers <laughs> and stuff with yeah. uh, with the, the other, but like in general, I think he does have that sort of attitude that, you know, Canadian podcasters, uh, you know, should especially like when it comes to like left of center politics and philosophy, um, should have each other's back. I guess for lack of a better phrase. Yeah. No, and it's cool to see just grad students doing that as well, picking up the medium and and you know and advancing their own work and. And yeah, developing totally. their own ideas and just the books too, man. I mean, great book that you guys pumped out and I hope you guys keep pumping them out too. And if I can, I'll, I'll get the word about them, <laughs> push it out. Uh, it doesn't matter. You know, read. these books, people shouldn't be buying these academic books. They're like hundreds of dollars, way too expensive. Just get it from your library. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But still, I mean, you don't want it to just linger on the, on the shelf there and not sure. get noticed for whatnot. But uh, I don't think Matt gets any money from, from book sales. <laughs> <laughs> the royalties Ac- for academic it. publishers are, are 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 you know um sharks when it comes yeah. to like uh when it comes to profits and Fuck. stuff like that it's even crazy. just the journals it's brutal. oh the journals are crazy yeah it's, it's an absurd amount of uh it's an absurd profit yeah profit engine well rock on man well listen i i really appreciate your time um and i'll probably circle back around when you guys keep on doing some new stuff i mean we yeah, didn't even get I to am. go and touch about some of your articles we just touched just a bit in terms of the intro that you wrote but you've written for arrow jacobin now too did you write for marion west too or it was just mostly yeah i wrote for marion west okay I wrote one i think i wrote one thing i mean I, I i haven't done those i've only done like four i think or maybe five i can't remember um 
Yeah, just like when when things came to me, but I'm you know I'm not like Matt. I, I, I for me it's like it's like a painful birthing process to write for me. It's not like Matt can just like <laughs> like spit them out like you know like he's peeing. You know, I like for me it's like a, for me writing is like a an, a, an arduous process. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh. So so yeah. I got it. But but you know I I was thinking lately about a couple of things where I was like maybe I should write, but also got to finish the dissertation. You know, trying to balance everything out. But uh, I did. I always enjoyed. I really like writing for those mediums because um because of the instant feedback you get from like the comments section. It's like fun to interact with people because they'll read it. And so different than like academic writing and academic publications because you know the feedback you're getting. I think my first peer reviewed article, like uh, you know, it's you know from 2019. And, uh, you know, it like, it was just maybe like a couple months ago where like, I saw the first citations where people were citing it in like other articles. Right. So it's just such slow, you know, like, uh, feedback loops where it's like, you know, it's been two years, three years since then. And then finally I'm seeing some people like, you know, comment yeah. about it. Right. It's no. And so I good. mean, that's another aspect too, that I've really enjoyed about your guys, uh, podcasts and public sort of discussions as grad students and you know, post grads and PhD students now and stuff like that is is just you know what what's going on in higher ed, right? And and what's involved there and uh, and stuff like that has been so illuminating for me to just even keep my pulse, uh, you know, keep a finger on that pulse and what's going on and in our universities and where technology is going out and innovating some of this as well. So uh, True. no, you guys are trailblazing that one along pretty cool to, in, a, in a very cool way. I mean, Pills is I don't know if he has any. Uh, uh, ambitions to possibly land up in higher, you know, some sort of university or college type stuff. But I mean, the way he's moving ahead, it's super creative for him to go out and weave in his, his studies, uh, in terms of that kind of a medium. It's amazing to watch. Yeah, totally. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think he was, he occasionally like will apply for a job if it comes up, but, um, but I don't think he really likes the, uh, I guess, the, the the sort of like academic game of like publishing and like you know it's a very specific kind of game you have to play if you want to go into academia which i'm not sure he's an excellent educator though right like you can tell from his videos that he's like very good at putting together mm. like lessons and, and lectures so i think he he enjoys the teaching side of it but i don't think he would en he enjoys the really like politics and publishing side of academia yeah um, no yeah i mean, I, mean I think he i think he's applied for like a few jobs here and there but i think he really is you know putting all his energy onto the kind of content creation well, either way, and I love that. I mean, keep up the great work. And uh, again, man, I really appreciate the time. 